And if you have your Bible, open up to the story in Daniel 5. If you don't, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you. And you should find Daniel 5 on page 629 or thereabouts in most of the seat Bibles. When I lived in Budapest, when I was in my 20s, I experienced what it was like to be a foreigner and a minority. I, I didn't speak the language. I was new to the city. And um, I didn't know the culture. And so I often felt like I was on the outside looking in of what was happening. Um, and I was there to be a missionary, to have an impact, to, to make a difference. And yet I felt powerless and I felt unable to contribute or to participate in a lot of ways. And, and this was actually a, a faith crisis for me. Um, I was struggling to know why God had me there and, and how God could use me when I felt so helpless. And then one day as I was, I was wrestling with all this, I was, I was in a little, my little local grocery store and I was thinking about all this, I was praying, I was crying out to God, and suddenly onto the radio in the grocery store came a song that I knew. It, it was a Christian, it was an American song. In fact, it was a Christian song. Um, it was Kim Hill's song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I have to tell you that this was not a well-known song. It was not an Amy Grant crossover. It, it was, or I had never, ever before or, in, or since heard this song on any radio in America or in Budapest of all places. In fact, in the three years that I was in Budapest, I don't think I ever heard another Christian song on the radio. But at that moment, that song came on, and it was a huge answer to prayer for me. It was like it was a message from God to me. A message to not worry so much, <laughs> to trust in God. I might feel ineffective and overwhelmed, but God was in control, though I might not see it right then. After all, God moves in mysterious ways. That's what today's story is about. As we continue through Daniel in our series uh, these past weeks on how our work matters to God. Today we're or we're going to be reminded that there are two ways to look at things. There are two ways to view our circumstances. There's the street-level view, the one that I was seeing in Budapest at that time, the, the one we all live in day by day. And then if you've ever been on an airplane or you've played with Google Earth, you know that there's the sky view from thousands of feet up, right, where you can see everything laid out before you and the big picture comes into view. I'll call it the, the sovereign view, the sovereign sky view, because remember the main theme of the book of Daniel is this, it's that despite all appearances, God is in control. God is sovereign over the, the events of, of men and of nations, sovereign over the earth. So this morning we're going to look at what happens in today's story from both of these views, first from the street level view. And then from the sovereign view, the sky view. So let's start with the street level view. At this point in, in the story of Daniel, Daniel is an old man. He's uh, probably about 80 years old. He's lived most of his life in Babylon, uh, his, his pl the place of his captivity. He's been there about 65 years at this point. And through his long life, Daniel has seen a number of great Babylonian rulers come and go. The first and the greatest, of course, was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had reigned for about 43 years. Um, and then he was replaced for two years by Evel Marduk. 
And then for four years after that by Nera Glisser. And then for several months after that by Nabishi Marduk. He didn't last long, Labishi Marduk. Before a king called Nabonidus took the throne. And Nabonidus ruled the Babylonian Empire for its final 17 years. For much of this time, about 10 of these years, however, Nabonidus had been away from Babylon, ruling in an Arabian city called Tema. And so during this time, Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, had ruled in Babylon on behalf of his father. Now, by the end of the reign of this father and son, the Babylonian Empire was fraying at the edges. It was crumbling on its foundations. And by the time of today's story, it's coming crashing down. The book of Daniel doesn't tell us this, but we know from history that just prior to today's story, Nabonidus and his troops have been defeated nearby by the Medo-Persian empires who are quickly taking over this region at this point in, in history. And um, on the night in which this story takes place, Babylon was anticipating an imminent attack by the Medo-Persians. So they're nervous, to say the least. There's instability, there's fear, yet there's a certain amount of hope and confidence too because the city of Babylon itself was very well fortified, well provisioned, and well defended. Well, interestingly, on this night when our story takes place, we find Belshazzar, the co-regent, holding a great banquet within the city. Now, what's going on here? Is this, is this meant to be a distraction from the danger outside? Or, or is it one final night of fun before all the trouble begins for Babylon? Or is it meant to, to you know, encourage the troops, to, to rally the leaders, the nobles for the ordeal that's before them and the leadership that they're going to have to take? We don't really know what the, the thinking is behind this big banquet. But regardless, as, as we see King Belshazzar's behavior at this banquet, we begin to get a picture of what sort of leader he is. First of all, after dinner has been served, he basically says, let's all get drunk now. Five times in the first few verses, the text stresses, they drank wine. This is not just, you know, a glass of wine after dinner. Um, and and uh, Belshazzar gets up in front of them all and he takes the lead in this wine drinking. Some translations say he drank with his guests. Others say he drank in front of them or before them. Either way, he's setting an example here for them to follow. It's, a very, it, it's, it's happening in a very public, conspicuous way. Well, as they continue drinking, he then orders that the holy sacred articles which his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple be brought so that they can all drink from them. Um, now, of course, the Babylonians believed in, in many different gods. And so to them, the Lord was just one of the many gods of, of the various nations whom the Babylonians, with the help of their gods, they believed, had defeated. The Lord just one among many defeated gods. But still, the Babylonians considered the holy objects of all the gods to be sacred. They believed in all the gods. And so, even for Belshazzar, taking these sacred objects and using them for a crazy party is reckless and sacrilegious. All the more so from the Lord's perspective, right? <laughs> I mean, if you remember back to the early part of the Old Testament... These, these were holy vessels. They had been in the Lord's temple, this temple where if you even went in or touched anything in it, you could be struck dead. Here, here's what 
Belshazzar's probably thinking no. He's, his city's in danger. The forces have been defeated outside of the city. And, and he's relying now on the Babylonian gods to rescue him. And after all, these were the gods who had made Babylon great in his thinking. These were the gods who had defeated the gods of all the other nations so that Babylon could conquer the other nations. And now Belshazzar is defending on these great gods to defend Babylon. Interestingly, we know from history that his father Nabonidus by this time has brought all the idols of the Babylonian gods from their temples into the city of Babylon to, to protect them from the enemy armies and so that they could protect Babylon from their enemies. All the gods have been assembled within the city of Babylon. And so Belshazzar is praising all these gods whose idols are now in Babylon, the gods of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. He's looking to these gods for help and remembering how great they are. And, and he's desecrating the sacred objects that the Babylon, of, of the Lord, who he thinks the Babylonian gods have defeated, in, in a way, uh, kind of thumbing his nose on, at these gods, you know, reminding all the, the nobles and everyone how great his gods are, and look, we've defeated the Lord. Perhaps he's using the sacred objects of other defeated foreign gods as well. The text doesn't really tell us if he is. But this is a huge, drunken, pagan pep rally happening here. It's for the sake of Babylon, and, and yet Belshazzar has crossed a line here, even for a Babylonian king, by actually leading this kind of drinking and, and desecrating sacred objects. So we're getting an idea of what kind of king Belshazzar is, as he's being squeezed by the pressure of this moment. Also, we know from history that he was a murderer, he was an assassin, he was not a good man. So question, if you're someone like Daniel in this story, where's the Lord? The Lord's sacred objects are being used at this pagan party to praise all these other gods. This is the ultimate insult. It's, it's blasphemy. And, and the Lord's doing nothing. Or, or, or so it seems. Um, he's not striking anyone dead. He's, he's allowing himself to be mocked and defiled. Well, we know what that's like, right? We live every day on the street level. We experience people cursing God's name. Uh, rejecting God's values. We, we've seen in recent months, if you've been following the news, politicians mock and criticize appointees to government positions because of those appointees' faith in Jesus. Also, many schools have an agenda now to bring in values that many of us believe are uh, unbiblical. Society's trying hard to kick God out of their public life. And, and where is God? As you go to work every day, where is God? What is God doing about this? That's how it often looks. That's how it often feels at the street level view, right? But when we move now to the sky view, to the, the sovereign view of God above, this is where the book of Daniel reminds us that despite all appearances, God is in control. God is sovereign. Because in, in what happens next, we begin to see that God is near, not nearly, the, the most high God, the Lord, is not nearly as defeated as Belshazzar thought. And as it appeared at that banquet. No, God is alive and well and in control, thank you very much. And you know, we've got to get out of our minds the message that society has been drumming into our brains and that too often we've let them cause us to believe and that is that it's fine to be a person of faith. It's fine to be a believer if you want. 
as long as you do it in private. (laughs) It's okay for God to be at home. It's okay for God to be at church. But God has no place in public life. God has no place at work. God has no place at school. And too often we go along with this. We, we box God in. God can only work at church or, or through the church, through, through Christians. God can't be out there in public. God can't work out there in the public beyond what the church is doing. Well, guess what? God never got that memo. <laughs> After all, God is the creator of the whole earth. God is supreme over all things. God's eyes see all that goes on in every square inch of the world. And God is in control everywhere and goes to work wherever God chooses. Even in the midst of a Babylonian drunken party among the powerful elite of a pagan capital when they're praising the pagan gods. Look what God does. First, God actually causes to be written on the plaster of the wall in in the banqueting hall a message right by the lampstand so everyone can see it. God causes four words to be written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. We can put the slide up. Here's what it may have looked like. It's a riddle. It's a word game. Literally, the words seem to all be units of money. Mene is uh, transliterated in English as mina. It's a, a, a unit of money. Tekel can also be spelled shekel, another unit of money. Um, Parson means half. Meeny, meeny, shekel and a half. Penny, penny, dime and a nickel. It's it's a word puzzle, but what in the world does it mean? And who wrote it? (laughs) And all of a sudden, the king's facade of courage crumbles. He's been trying to hold it together, trying to encourage himself and his people in the face of a looming threat. But now he's, he's terrified. His, his face goes pale. He goes weak in the knees. In fact, his knees knock together. His city is about to be attacked, he knows. He, he's calling out to the gods to save him. He's basically been trash-talking the, the Lord and maybe some of the other gods that he thinks his gods have defeated to remind himself of how powerful his, his gods are. He, he's sacrilegiously been using these sacred objects to show his great power, to thumb his nose at the gods of his enemies. But now the God he's offended suddenly shows up with a message, a message the king can't understand. But you know Belshazzar realizes this isn't going to be good news. So he, he scrambles, quick, bring in the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners, the ones who we've we trained and we've paid to decipher this kind of stuff. Let them figure it out and discern it so that we as political leaders and military leaders will know what to do. But these Babylonian wise men, the, the experts, the best in the land, they're baffled too. They have no idea how to interpret this puzzle. And so the king becomes even more terrified. What's he going to do? Understanding this message is, is probably life and death, but nobody has a clue what it means. Well, then we see the second way that God works in the situation. The, the queen, or the queen mother, hears uh, what's going on. This is probably Belshazzar's mother, the Nabonidus' wife. And um, she comes in, and, and she basically rebukes him. Look at you, she basically says. Making a fool of yourself, dishonoring yourself in front of all the nobles of Babylon. Acting all alarmed and pale, stop it. (laughs) 
If you had a clue, you'd know there's someone who can help. Back when Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, ruled, he had appointed a man named Daniel, chief of all of these enchanters and astrologers and diviners, because Daniel had the spirit of the gods in him. Daniel was smarter and wiser than any of the rest of them. He could interpret any dream or riddle. Call Daniel in. He can handle this. So enter Daniel, back to work after some years of retirement. He, he's now no longer forgotten. He's no longer overlooked. <clears throat> and as he steps back into the workplace, God's already gone before him. Already gotten the king's attention, <laughs> to say the least. Already provided the king with a glowing letter of recommendation via the king's mother as to Daniel's abilities. And so all Daniel has to do is recognize and join in with what God is already doing. And that's the point of today's passage as it relates to our work and how our work matters to God. It's that God is at work in the world, and we may not always see it from the street view. We may get caught up in the world's worldview that God isn't relevant, that God isn't welcome, that that God should just stay with the old church ladies and the musty old churches and Keep your religion to yourself. But God says, no, I am sovereign over all. I am sovereign over the workplace, the public sphere. It belongs to me too. In fact, the whole world belongs to me. It's all my domain. And I'm at work in it. And so as we go to work, we should pay attention to how God is at work. And and join in in what God is doing. We should join in God's work in the world. And that's what Daniel does here. He, he lets the king know that it is indeed the Lord who wrote the message for the king. And he solves the word puzzle, giving its meaning. Mene. It means mina, but it can also mean numbered. Because here's the thing about ancient Aramaic in which this was written. This language, like Hebrew, they, they only wrote down the consonants. They didn't write down the vowels. These are all consonants up here. You read it actually down from from right to left. In this case, we think it might have been written down. So that first word on the right there, those three letters going down, the three consonants, which can be translated mene. But um, the word can have several meanings depending on the vowels that you supply. And this word can also, in verb form, mean numbered. Um, It's actually a participle, um, for those of you who remember seventh grade English. Um, so numbered. Tekel, in, in a, as a participle, can mean weighed. And parson, as a, as a participle, can mean divided. As a noun, it can mean half, but it can also mean Persian. So the way Daniel reads it, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, Persian. Numbered, your days are numbered. Numbered again, really numbered. Weighed, you have been weighed on the scales of justice. Now, interestingly, historians tell us that for Babylonian astrologers, as Daniel and all the astrologers would have known, the day that this was happening was the rising of the constellation Libra. Does anyone know what shape Libra is? Scales. Yeah, for weighing things. God knows how to speak the language 
that people understand, even pagan people. You have been weighed on the scales of justice. And then divided and Persian, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The word puzzle solved. Daniel did it. He, he joined in in what God was doing. And Daniel also tells the king, it's the God whose sacred articles you have profaned who is talking to you now. Why? Because you're not like the great Nebuchadnezzar who you aspire to be like. No, he, he was arrogant too, but when God rebuked him, he humbled himself. But you have not learned from that. You, you, you not only ignore all that, but you've actually thumbed your nose at God by sacrilegiously using God's sacred vessels. You get the feeling Daniel doesn't like this king very much. I, I mean, Daniel was always patient and positive with Nebuchadnezzar, saying things like, if only this dream that you had was for your enemies and not you, O king. <laughs> Maybe because Nebuchadnezzar was responsive and open and, and willing to humble himself. But Belshazzar's nothing but arrogant and unrepentant, and so Daniel lets him have it. Maybe it's also because Daniel's old now and he doesn't have too much to lose. <laughs> There's a boldness which comes more easily when you're retirement age that's harder to muster when you're starting out and trying to build a resume. That's not an excuse for us young people. <laughs> but anyway, Daniel rebukes the king, prophesying his destruction, which it turns, takes, it turns out takes place that very night. The Medo-Persian empire invades the city Sneaking in, we know from history, while the city was feasting and slaying Belshazzar. So in this case, joining in God's work involves bringing down an empire. It, it makes me think of, of the church's role in Eastern Europe back in the, the, the 90s during the fall of the, the Iron Curtain. And, and the way that, that the churches of Eastern Europe boldly stood up and led the people as God had brought communism to the point of weakness and teetering and wavering, and the church stepped up and helped give it a push over. Similarly, God's people have helped to end apartheid in South Africa, systematic discrimination in the United States. They've helped to end slavery, child labor. They've helped to get women the right to vote, to reform hospitals and prisons. God's people have done all of that, if you know your history books. Each time recognizing that God was at work in the world, in God's world, and so we could join in, we could step in. Through our work, we could join God's work and accomplish God's purposes in God's world. 